Hey everyone, welcome back to Let's Talk. Today on the show, we are going to be reviewing Live and Let Die from 1973. It's going to be me and David again. And hey, we're going to dive right into it right now. David, what did you think of Live and Let Die? Did you enjoy it? I love Live and Let Die. Um, it's one of my favorite Bond movies. Yeah. It's... It could potentially be my favorite Roger Moore Bond movie as well. Really? Well, this one was directed again yep. by uh, Guy Hamilton back for the third time. Believe it or not, David, this one had another $7 million budget. <laughs> so I don't know what it is with $7 million budgets, but they must have just been allocating that right to the Bond movies. But this one actually made, what is that, $162 million. And it's the first time Roger Moore is in there as James Bond. Well, the theory by the it's $7 million. Yeah, I can't believe it's it. It's because um, 007. You think that's why? Because that would make it actually... <laughs> it's weird that they keep giving these movies $7 million budgets and they just go over and make over $100 million at the box office. You'd think they'd up it a little bit and like, yeah, you know, stop having to worry about constraining it so much. But, I mean, it works for them. And this movie, I thought, actually looked way better than actually previous Bond movies. But we'll dive into that in a second because we're going to actually, right now, since we're ranking, since we're doing the Bond movies, we're going to actually do rankings at the beginning of these videos for you guys. David, why don't you give them your rankings first of the top seven Bond films that we've done so far? No problem. So, at number seven, I have Ames Are Forever. Okay. At number six, I have You Only Live Twice. All right. At number five is Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Okay, I respect that. Number four is Dr. No. All right. Number three, Thunderball. Number two, Goldfinger. All right. And my number one is From Russia With Love. All right, I respect that. <laughs> I respect that. High ranking from From Russia With Love, but I respect that. Yeah, I know you love that movie. So that's actually- Yeah, it's a, it's a classic. I just think From Russia With Love is a really good spy movie, and they didn't have to have James Bond in it. And you could still enjoy that film. Yeah, it's a very, like, pulled back from the Bond kind of movies. Because that's only the second outing before Goldfinger. So it's kind of, like, still kind of pulled back on the gadgets. And I think that's a really enjoyable one, too. I don't have it as high as you. The bottom of my list is actually very similar to yours. Because at number seven, I got You Only Live Twice. At number six, I got Diamonds Are Forever. Number five, I have Dr. No. Number four, I have Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Number three, I got From Russia With Love. Number two, I got Thunderball, and the number one, I got Goldfinger. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a pretty good list. Yeah, I've come around on From Russia With Love. I think after talking to you, you know, it kind of swayed me a little bit because I might have been a little too hard on it just because of the pacing of it, but it's a well-made movie. Really. Yeah, well, and as I say, what I like about it is it's very grounded Bond movie. You know, there's no real over-the-top gadgets or anything like that in it. Um, and it has a great villain in Red Grant as well, and, and a really good story. I, that's what I like about it. I think that's why it stands the test of time, even though it's um, a product of its time. It's you know it's dated in a ways of effects fact, and things like that. But I think that's why it stood the test of time as a great spy thriller because you don't have any over the top nonsense. No, it's very grounded. I mean, everything in it. I love the opening to that movie, too. It has one of the better openings in any of the Bond movies as far as, like, the cold openings go. I think that might have been the first one to actually do that, which is really cool also. Um, yeah, I'm trying to remember Dr. No. It's been a way since I've seen that one. But I do the half thing when you think Bond has been killed and it turns out to be it's not Bond, somebody else with a mask on. And it has the superb Robert Shaw playing Red Grant. Yep. Uh, the, the watch. Mm-hmm. I love Robert Shaw. The, that the, movie. The strangle comes out of the watch. The strangle. Yeah, I like that with the water. Yeah. It comes out. 
<laughs> Robert Shaw is just so good. He's one of my favorite actors as well. So maybe that's why I'm influenced with from Russia with Love. I mean, his role in that is just so different from his role in Jaws, too. It just shows you the range of the actor. Funny enough, when Spielberg uh, was casting him for Jaws, um, the producers actually were the ones to suggest it to him. What about Robert Shaw for Quint? Oh, really? And Steven Spielberg and the writer went and watched a few of his films, and one of the movies they watched was for Mercy of Love. And when they seen that, they thought, yeah, that's a perfect Quint, because they felt as if, that was the first time they had actually seen a, a Bond henchman go, go hand to hand with, with Bond and actually be able to physically shake him on. They had that physical presence, that kind of intimidation factor, and they felt that he was the only Bond villain to that point, probably 1974 here, that actually seemed credible that could take James Bond on. And they were right. I mean, Robert Shaw in that movie, his presence is unbelievable. That's actually true. He's equal to the main villain in that movie. He is a threat throughout the rest of them. Although I, I like Odd Job or uh, in um, Goldfinger too. I think he's a very big threat as well. But yeah, as far as like I'm thinking of them all, they're all pretty easy to cast aside from that point on until about 1974. And then we get some great, obviously some great ones in like Jaws and stuff like that that would appear throughout the rest of the movies. But up until that point, yeah, I'd agree. Robert Shaw was probably the most menacing, most threatening, and you know, he didn't really have to talk as much to be... He just really did a lot of it with his face. He just looked angry. It was perfect. And with the blonde hair as well, he really stood out too. When yep. you think about it. Oh, yeah. The blonde hair stayed in <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, I have... Well, I don't really have hair, but when I do, it's blonde. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a man's part on gray, so don't be worried about it. Yeah. At least you've still got a bit of color in yours. Eh, you know, the beard kind of makes it look like I have more color. Other than that, it's not really much color on top, and it's thin, and, you know, you know how it is. <laughs> yep, yep, you're preaching the converted beard, John. Yeah, that's why I always wear a hat. So people... keep it short. Exactly, people don't need to know what's going on. <laughs> but here, funny enough about your Unmajesty Secret Service ranking on your Dr. No, I don't mind this here, I, I was conflicted over that. I actually was going to put Majesty's above Dr. No, and I don't know, at the last minute I switched them around, because I think, it's been a way since I watched Dr. No, but I think part of the reason is because it's the first one, and that it's established Bond, and it has a lot of the tropes and kind of like the seats of the tropes of what we know Bond to become, like for example, the villain with the deformity, um, in the lair at the end, we have um, the quintessential Bond girl as such, you know, um, all your Andres coming out of the water, all those type of things. You've got the Bond thing, all those type of things to me for from Doctor No are where it started. So I think that's probably why I just kept automatically Secret Service for me in the fourth place there. Yeah, I mean, I, I really, I think what Honor Majesty's Secret Service and both Doctor mm -hmm. No, why I even rank them higher, even if I don't love the pacing. I love the set design. I think that the set design, the cinematography of both of those movies is done really well. You know, Dr. No has some technical flaws in comparison to, like, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, but I really appreciate the set design. It's just, you know, I used to really rank Dr. No very high, and after the rewatch, I just, you know, the pacing of it really does drag it down. They haven't really found their footing yet, so unfortunately, I had to rank it a little bit lower. And, you know, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, you know, suffers from not the greatest at acting, but it's still a well-made movie. Yeah, I can't disagree with that. It, it, it was very close for me when I was putting it side by side, and I think possibly the more the, should I say, the nostalgia, or 
Maybe not even so much the nostalgia of Dr. No, just because it is held in high regard as the first Bond is probably why I just put it above it. But maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe it's not necessarily a bad movie. Yeah, you know, it's got to get the credit, at least when you're talking James Bond. It's the first Bond movie, so it's important. It sets the stage of what we would, you know, learn, uh, you know, come to know Bond as. And obviously Sean Connery was still finding his footing. But speaking of Sean Connery, they actually offered him the role for this movie before they moved on to Roger Moore, but he declined. So Roger Moore was selected. They had tried to get him before, I believe, right, when they were getting George Lazenby? Yeah, as far as I'm aware, they actually offered it to him um, for Dr. No. And then again, on a Majesty's Secret Service, and for whatever reason, he didn't take the job. I had heard that they had went to other actors before Moore for Living That Die. He yep. even offered it to Burt Reynolds. That was he a- says that he thought it should be played by a British person. You know, that's really honorable of him because I've always felt like that too. And it's funny that even in the 70s, Burt Reynolds, who could have had a star making, because that's really before Smokey and the Bandit. So like, yeah, he was a star, but he wasn't like an established, like the big time. I think it's just off of deliverance. So like for him to pass on Mm -hmm. what could be a career role and actually honorably say it should be a British role, which is, I agree with that. I think that Bond should always be played by somebody who's either British or Scottish, you know. I don't think you need an American playing James Bond, even if they can do the accent. I think it just shouldn't go to them personally. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, I can understand that. Um, it's never really kind of bothered me because we've had Bonds before who aren't necessarily British, but you could turn around and say that that was the reason why they weren't successful. But like, for example, um, George Lazenby he's Australian, isn't he? Yeah, I guess that's true too. But I just I feel like it shouldn't go to an American because like there are other American spy yeah. franchises. This has always felt like a very you know like a very British franchise. Even though it opened this one especially opened yeah. two weeks before it even opened in Britain, which is weird. You would think it would open in Britain first, then it would travel the world. But no, it opened in the U.S. first. So I guess that's just still the, I guess the Hollywood market of film. But just go back to what you're saying about the actors there is um. But no, listen, I, I understand, I agree. I mean, if, if the actor's going to be, uh, sorry, the character's British, then I have no issue with him being, being British. You know what I mean? It's, it makes, it does make kind of sense. You know what I mean? I mean if you got somebody who, who was, uh, American, but was able to put it up, I mean, it remains to be seen, really, doesn't it? But I can understand if the, if the producers actually just went down the road of, no, we want somebody who's British. But the only thing is, Pier- Pierce Brosnan's actually from Ireland. So they've never really, I guess, really gotten too many full-blown British. As long as they can, like, European, I guess, is the best way to put it. You know, try and get a European actor. You know, I just feel like it's not the most American movies. Even though they do travel, because they're world-traveling movies. You know, they always, they never stay in one place. Even in this movie, you know, they're in New York in parts. They're in New Orleans. But then they're also in the Caribbeans. So it's not like it's staying in one place. Yeah, exactly. That's true. They move, move about a bit. Um, I'm just kind of thinking here as well that um, I think that the only two Englishmen that actually play Bond is Roger Moore and um, Daniel Craig. Yeah, both have lighter hair, even too. Timothy Dalton is Welsh. Is he Welsh? I see. I didn't know that. I actually would have assumed. But that actually makes sense because he always had a very unique accent to me. Like, Roger Moore, his accent in this movie is just very British, and that's how he would kind of appear throughout the yeah. movies. I actually felt like... He looks like the most regular-looking Bond I've ever seen. Out of all of them, he just looks like a regular guy. If he wasn't James Bond, he could have just fooled me and said that that was a regular guy in the street. Which, you know, he's a spy, so he should be able to blend in. But, like, Sean Connery was so distinct-looking. And now Roger Moore kind of just looks like your regular Joe. I mean, yeah, I, I have to say, actually, Roger Moore actually looks well in this movie as well. 
Um, do you believe he's three years older than Sean Connery? Really? I. <laughs> he doesn't look it. He looks like he's like five years younger than Sean Connery did in the last movie. Sean Connery was aging hard in the last year. I was like, wow, Roger, because Roger Moore, when we get into his 80s bonds, he starts to really look pretty damn old. He starts to push the limit as far as the age of James Bond goes, especially when he's, you know, sleeping around with some of those girls who are much younger than him. <laughs> yeah. It gets a little rough. I have thoughts about that for A Beauty a Kill. I have thoughts about that and. I may save it for that one, John, to be honest with you, but you're right. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you think about it, what year was this? Out? 72? This one um, is uh, 73. It came out June 27th, 1973. So they were filming in 73. 73. Yep. So he plays Bond for another 12 years, really? Yeah. And um, I think he was near 60 when A Beauty I Kill came out. Wow, yeah, so, wow, damn, yeah, he was, and he was, like, what, the, the women were, like, in their 20s, so it was a little rough <laughs> at that point, and plus yeah, he's doing uh, the fight I'll scenes. i my thoughts for, for uh, the, the beauty I killed for that one, I have some thoughts on what they should have done, um, but when you think about it, this is two, actually two years after Damon Dark River, and he still looks a hell of a lot younger than Connery did yeah. in 1971. Yeah, he looks way younger than Connery did in 1971. And this movie, even though it's directed by Guy Hamilton, I felt like it also made a pretty big jump in as far as the visual quality and the quality of the film itself. It felt more like a 1970s film, which is actually what they were going for because it's inspired a lot by black exploitation films of the time. And obviously the plot of the movie is kind of revolving around that as well. Which, which is what I was going to say in the previous uh, podcast. I was saying about when we get into the 70s, just watch how these films start to reflect the popular movies of that time, and this is the start of it. So this is Live and Let Die. It's heavily influenced by the black exploitation films of the times, and and um, I've got a few thoughts around that, and a few thoughts around the score. So apparently, John Barry um, didn't score some of the movies in the seventies because he had tax problems. Huh. Well, that's weird. <laughs> so they, yeah, isn't it? So yeah. they got um, George Martin, who was the Beatles manager. Oh, really? The movie. Huh. I didn't know he was the yeah. Beatles manager. And obviously, Wings and Paul McCartney do the Bond song. Yeah. That... And I really love the score to this movie. I think that I don't necessarily think it's better than any kind of Barry scores, but it's just right for this movie. It just, it just hit the right flavor because it's a smaller urban film. And it just it does actually sound um, right for the Black Spoiled kind of. Uh, um, Tone that we're going for. And the I love the Live and Let Die theme song. And, Say live and, let die. and the way they use it throughout the movie, like they kind of just play it in different versions of it, like, you know, just instrumental versions of them of it. And it's done perfectly. Combine it with like the, the Bond theme. I, I absolutely love the score to this movie. Yeah. I thought it was scored perfectly. I, th- I thought it helped enhance a ton of scenes. So, like, just regular yeah. scenes that were, were not a big deal, but, like, the way the score would come in at certain points, and it would be just live and let die, and, like, a either a sped-up version with, like, a little bit of different instrumentals to it, I, I thought it worked out yeah. perfectly. I really thought the score really helped to enhance this movie. Yeah, and as you said, about the, how it's worked into the score, the live and let die song, um, when he goes to the, the club in Harlem, what was it called again? Um, I can't remember what the name of the club was off the top of my head. Something Soul. But I, I actually love that club scene. I... <laughs> yeah, well, there's a woman singing the Live and Not Die song, a version of the Live and Not Die song, when he goes in the second time. Oh, they live and not die. 
Yeah, I actually thought that was strange that she was singing that. I, I mean, it was a different version of it, but I thought it was weird. I was like, at first, mm-hmm. I was like, am I hearing that right? Because it, it it's also very yeah. strange the fact that Live and Let Die, because I was watching this and Faith was on the couch. I'm like, you've heard this song before, right? I'm like, did you know that it was made for this movie? Because Live and Let Die has also been covered numerous times, like famously by Guns N' Roses. So it's like transcended, like just being a Bond theme song. It's like bigger than that. It's actually just considered a classic song at this point. Yeah. Um, first of all, I want to say I hit that Guns N' Roses version. It really annoys me. <laughs> oh, the Guns N' Roses version, I actually hate it too. Like, I'm not the biggest Beatles fan. Um, not even like like I prefer Paul McCartney actually when he went solo. Actually, I prefer John Lennon too his solo work. But uh, it, but in Wings, but uh, yeah, I don't like the, the Guns N' Roses version either. It's just it's too much of an Axl Rose like showpiece and I feel like he was really feeling himself with that one <laughs> yeah he definitely was but I, I have to say what you're saying about the song in this movie you're right um, and that's what I wanted to ask you is it the best Bond song of all pain uh, it, it's not my personal favorite Bond theme song of all time but it's definitely the most famous one my actually my favorite one is uh, Living Daylights by Aha <laughs> I, I just it's just the yeah. 80s in me and like I love that song I listen to that song. It's like on my permanent rotation, so it'll probably pop up like once a week for me. <laughs> yeah, I really like that one as well. Um, but I think about you're saying about Wings and Paul McCartney, it does, it does transcend more than just the movie. And I think it, you're right, it's one of those type of songs. I've always thought of um, Living That Die, the song, as a song that could have just been released as, yeah. as a song in the 70s, and people would have liked it anyway. It didn't have to be in this movie. And I think that's testament to Damon's. And I think out of a lot of the Bond songs that before and, and since, I, I think that it's um, that's why it's endured. The be- I think it's endured the best. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm thinking like re- in recent years, I I would have to say the Adele song uh, for Skyfall kind of had a, a little pop run there where it was reaching the charts. But even on like Billie Eilish's song on No Time to Die, like that kind of just came and went. So and for the most part, like in Casino Royale, I think Chris Cornell did that one like that. It's not memorable. It's not as many like this one. It's a 50 year old song and people still younger kids will still know live and let die like because it pops up just all the time on just regular radio if you're listening. Yeah, and it hasn't aged. It hasn't. It's incredible. <laughs> That's the thing. You can listen to like Goldfinger, great song, but it's like a big band song, you know, and it's kind of dated because of the era. You know, and there's other band songs as well. When you start going into the late 70s and they're doing the ballads. You know, they're a bit kind of dated. Even the 80s ones, I agree. I love the 80s ones, but even the likes of like License to Kill and Aha and A View to Kill, you know, they're quintessential 80s songs. But this song, even in the early 70s, I feel as if it could be released next week and it will be a hit. 100%. I mean, that's the genius of Paul McCartney, though, really. Paul McCartney is one of the greatest songwriters, like song composers of all time. And even if I'm not, like, the biggest Beatles song, I don't know if you watched that Get Back documentary a couple years ago that Peter Jackson did. Like, you just respect the artist that he is. And, you know, the fact that he made this song with his wife um, and Wings, it's it, it it's just a testament to his work and his body of work. Because Paul McCartney, he still, from what I understand, can still sing. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm um, not a big Beatles fan, but my parents, that's their era, yeah. the 60s, and I grew up, Obviously, hearing Beatles songs being played, parties and stuff like that. So I'm very familiar with, with the Beatles, but 
I wouldn't say I'm a fan. And yeah, some really good songs, of course, supposed to be, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we might get in trouble if we start knocking the Beatles because you know, it's still one of the most famous bands of all time. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to get into trouble with anybody exactly. You know? Anybody in my family or anything either. You know, I, I'm uh, indifferent with them. I mean, I, I, like you say, I respect them. I respect what they've done. Yeah. I respect what they've done for pop music. I respect what they've done possibly for the British music industry and this, uh, just for the music industry in general. But I mean, they wouldn't be the first band that would go here and listen, listen to. Um, no. Yeah. No, I, I don't ever go out of my way to listen to a Beatles album. Like, if they're on, it's like, okay, but I'm not going to go out of my way to go listen to a Beatles song. I appreciate the influence. I appreciate everything they did, but it's just not my cup of tea. If I'm listening to music from the 60s, it's probably going to be the Rolling Stones. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of music isn't like movies in the sense I I don't really go back too too far. Like I like anything after like 1970 is kind of like where I start like with music. Yeah, I'd be the same um 70s, 80s, 90s. Now, I'm starting to get a wee bit more nostalgic for the 90s now. Now that I'm getting older. Yeah. I, I, I listened to a podcast and I, it's uh, so true. It's like once you hit like 30, you stop like pretty much listening to any new music and you just start yeah. going back and like listening to all the older music that like either you grew like you're nostalgic for and like what influenced them yeah. and that's it. You like you just can't go forward anymore. <laughs> yep, yeah, 100%. That's that's true. I, I've stopped listening to modern music and the further we get away from the Nikes, the more they you discover songs you haven't heard in years and you go actually go actually a really good song right yeah you get like an emotional reaction to them yeah brings back memories yeah so diving back into this movie uh because this movie follows at the very beginning we see three imf eight not imf i just watched mission impossible three mi6 agents get murdered one by one you know one in new york one in new orleans and one in the caribbean islands and you know m shows up at bond's house which very nice house he has and tells him that he has to uh he's gotten sent out right away we got to figure this out and we don't yeah. know it yet, but he's uh, searching for Yafia Koto, who I think is one of the most underrated actors ever. I just have to say that when M and in money panic turn up the Bond's house, I just I was very impressed how domesticated he was. Yes, the, the, it, it almost felt like a sitcom for a few minutes. <laughs> well, she's hiding in the closet. I was thinking, I'm like, it's his house, right? Like, well, she doesn't need to hide. I mean, M, I'm sure. I mean, maybe out of respect for uh, Miss Money Penny, I would think, because that's the only scene she pops yeah. up in. Maybe so, but it was like five, what, five forty in the morning. Yeah, I guess. I was wondering like why maybe they were on their way to the office together. I was trying to figure out like why she was with M. <laughs> <laughs> I know she just nods in. Like, what is, did she give him the watch from Q? Yes, that's where you get because Q doesn't pop up in this movie. And, and actually, in my research, uh, the actor you know his name better than me. I off the top of my head, I'm gonna screw it up. Llewellyn, what's his first name again? Can't remember his first name. I think so it, name's Llewellyn. Yeah, he was filming a show. He was a, a sick. He was an actor at the time, and he was able to get time off for two episodes to go film this movie. And at right. the last minute, they canceled the scenes, and he was apparently really pissed off about that. And even the actress who plays Miss Moneypenny. Um, she was only going to get paid for one day of work, but apparently they screwed up shooting that scene and they had to reshoot it the next day. So she actually got paid for two days of work. And she said that, uh, Roger Moore said that she would, she was wearing a fur coat. She said, this is what I bought my second day of work. <laughs> <laughs> well, here it's the only scene to have in the movie. 
Yeah, she's only in one scene, and but she was only in one scene in uh, Diamonds Are Forever too. Apparently, they paid her the same rate for both movies for some reason. Like I said, they're like penny pinching with their seven million dollar budget. They were really not trying to spend so much money. <laughs> they changed her name to Miss Money Penny McPinson. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's what they want to do. I mean, I guess she was still game because she does get a bigger role in later movies. But it's also weird that no cue and they wanted to, I guess, pull back on the gadgets, but. They use the hell out of that watch in this movie. Yeah, they, they certainly do. Well, that, that's what I actually like about this movie as well, is that it's Bond going on a mission. Yes. Right? It, it's smaller scale. It's not a guy looking to take over the world. It's in cert, sat in a certain place. They come in, they give him a mission, and he goes off and he does his thing. And I think for a new Bond coming in, I think that was perfect for him. They kind of find his feet. And I actually think that Roger Moore in this film, say he doesn't make a false move, I think his, his one-liners are absolutely brilliant. Um, if you take it in the context of, of, the, of the movie, it's fun, it's pun and cheek. I think he's got some of the best one-liners, to this point anyway, of, of the Bond franchise. Oh, 100%. I actually absolutely loved his performance in this movie. I, I, I loved everything he was doing. The mo- movie's played a lot more lighthearted compared to some of the Connery ones. You know, it's even like a step more in the camp category, even from the previous Bond movie. So Roger Moore, actually, I, from what I was reading, he wanted to have his Bond be a little bit different from Sean Connery. He wanted him to be a little bit more lighthearted and funny. And I, I think he nailed it in this one. Like, for example, at the end of the first series, in sheer magnetism burning. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny you should say about him wanting to be different as well. Um, a friend of mine was saying to me today, talking, and um, he's a big Bond fan. And he mentioned to me that this is the first movie that um, Bond doesn't use the Walker PPK. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. And if you notice, he's actually got, I think it's a Magnum. Yeah. Which I'm wondering, is that influenced from Dirty High? It was big. So I was thinking the same thing. So I was actually, when I was watching it, I was like, wow, that's a really noticeably big gun. And I'm so yeah, that would make sense. Actually, when I was taking notes for this movie... There's a lot of similarities between this movie and Doctor No. Yes. So I was like, I was pretty surprised at that. Like, I wonder if that was intentional. Like, oh, it's Roger Moore's first movie. We're gonna take certain steps. Like in the, you know, I was noticed. Like instead of in Doctor No, it's a spider. In this one, it's a snake. It's in a hotel yep. room. Like an assassination attempt on an animal. I'm like, that's right. And even a Smith and Western line. That's like right out of Doctor No. Uh, funny enough, I thought that the same when he was, when he went to Harvey and Aiden. I was getting vibes of Doctor. And I've thought about this before when he goes into the bungalow and he's looking for the bugs, and then as you say, the snake instead of the spider. I just thought this is like Dr. No. And when the is it the CIA guard who's through the door as well? Yes, if I'm there, remember correctly, there was a bad guy who comes through the door. And Doctor No, but he ends up killing them, doesn't he? Yeah, well, that's like where the yeah, but it's the same thing where the gun is like coming through the door first before he does. But that's right out of Doctor No. Same thing in the bungalow. And that one, yeah. it's a different Smith and Western line. But the fact that he says Smith and Western in that one, he's like, "You've used all yours," and then he kills the guy. But in this that's one, right. this one, it was a little bit different. But they both bring up the gun being a Smith and Western. I was like, it has to be a Doctor No. Uh, reference because there was just a few of those throughout but yet the tone of this movie is nothing like dr no no it's not i mean it, it's quite the sound the early 70s it definitely is as we said it goes back to the black exploitation um movies of that time and that's where it's getting its influences from now i haven't read the book but apparently in the book Salvatore was was black was an african-american woman yep and rosie who plays the cia agent and the book was white so they basically for the movie they've switched them around 
Yes. What did you think? Speaking of which, is switching the roles around like that. I thought they both did great, but uh, what did you think of Felix Leiter in this movie? Yeah, I mean, I need to know. I think you're Taylor looking. Yeah, he's different than Guillen, isn't he? Yeah. A different actor? He played Felix Leiter twice, but not in back-to-back mm-hmm. movies. He plays it in this, and then I believe in Not Living Day, uh, License to Kill, he comes back as Felix Leiter. Yes, that's right. That's where I recognize him from. I, I knew I knew him from somewhere, but I, I wasn't sure if it was from another Bond movie or something else. I, I thought he was very, very good in this, to be honest. Felix, for all he was in it, again, he was playing it for laughs as well. Yeah. Like, for example, when Bond actually takes over the, the European, what was it? The Bleaker Flying student. Yes. <laughs> uh, and he gets in, and he's, and there's a, a student in the plane, she's called Mrs. Bell, and she's, he says there, that's just when it, Mrs. Bell. <laughs> um, but after I read it, I have to look up the notes here, but um, he says there, the same thing tomorrow, Mrs. Bell, and she's just sitting like dumbfounded. But yeah. it comes to the next scene, and Felix is on the phone to Mr. <laughs> Baker, who actually owns the school, the flat school, and you hear him on the phone saying, um, Mr. Baker, I know you just can't glue the wings back on. <laughs> I know, I love that. Honestly, I love that whole scene. The girl, she, he just jumps in there. Oh, yeah, he's not going to make it in today. Let's just, why don't we just get started, Mrs. Bell? And the way she just looks at him with the hat and the glasses and everything and when he gets in. <laughs> yeah, those huge <laughs> glasses. I'm like, is that what people, is that what she thought people were going to wear when they fly plane? I don't know. <laughs> but I, I, I realize at the end when he says, same thing, Mrs. Week, Mrs. Bell, <laughs> it's actually the scene earlier when he first gets in. It's the same shot because you can see the wing is back on again behind her. Uh, but it's still the same shot of her like yeah it's the exact same face she's making <laughs> exact same face and the phone says to Felix the next day on the phone he says uh, how is Mrs. Bell and he says there an intensive car <laughs> It's such a it, overall. It's just really just a. It, it's a very lighthearted, funny movie. But everything is just kind of dumb. Even like the dramatic scenes, like they're not too too dramatic. No, Some of the line no. delivery isn't the greatest, but I, I really loved also in this movie. Yeah, yeah, Quota. I, I love him. Although he's not the most menacing of villains because his the way he delivers lines in all of his movies, he's never like the most menacing guy. Always thinking him from like Alien or Midnight Run. Yeah, I think he's great in this. I think he's brilliant. I know what you're saying about being Madison. The thing that got me the biggest thing that got me about this movie was Mr. Big and Mr. Kananga. I didn't think the prosthetic job was very good. No, it it was that for you at all? It, it did. It was. Uh, I, I didn't think it was the greatest either. Um, you know, certain things in this movie also, as far as like. You know, the black exploitation stuff could be seen as a little bit offensive now, like referring to that big white Cadillac as a pimp mobile. <laughs> a white pimp mobile is what they refer to that car as. Although I gotta admit, I kinda like the car. <laughs> yeah. It's a very nice car. And I'm not the taxi driver as well, talking about being a offensive. Yeah, calling white people honkies and everything like that. <laughs> yeah, they got a well, it did make his name when it bowled off of them funny books. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's just on the time. When he picks him up later on, I actually like, like this movie. When he picks him up later on, he's calling him Jim. Yeah. Hey, Jim. Yeah, I know. I was noticing that too. I'm like, he just automatically assumed that because his name is James, he would be going by Jim. I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, and I've never ever called anybody, or never ever heard anybody call James Bond Jim, ever. No, I think that's... I was trying to actually think of that. If I, anyone has ever said, referred to him that in any other movie, I don't think he ever goes by Jim. I guess he was just assuming, you know, he's in New York, and in the sense that he was just assuming that, ah, his name's James, he must go by Jim. Every other James goes by Jim, right? Yeah, I think he was probably getting a bit uh, cute. 
Yeah, I, I think that was the whole reasoning behind that. I like actually because they did film in New York, and it actually felt like a like the way they were filming, like the it, the moving the camera around a lot. It did feel like a a lower budget kind of movie, like the black exploitation movies at the time when they were filming in all these different scenes. Yeah. I like that a lot actually because they did go film on location, not yeah. just in Pinewood and you know in London. Yeah, I actually seen that they changed the aspect ratio for this movie. Um, so it was like one point six six. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Some of the previous movies were two points up or another. Yeah, so it was more kind of like a like a TV kind of feel about it rather than a grand kind of movie. Yeah, it felt more definitely 1970s. I actually, you know, we don't haven't really talked about it, but I thought the Blu-ray for this was actually really nice too. I, I was surprised at it, like especially like in the opening scenes when the hands like come up like this, and like I was like, oh wow, the black is actually really deep, and the hands separate. Yeah. I was actually surprised at that. Yeah, and, and the audio as well. I thought the audio was fantastic for the age of the movie. We thought I talked about the score and stuff, but just the audio in general and the sound effect and everything, as you say about the Blu-ray, yeah, I actually had it on the sound bar and I had it turned up and it sounded pretty good. Like, I actually had to turn it down a bit. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's the technology advances. We're what now, eleven years after the first Bond movie, so you know technology's advancing. Even if they're only still giving them seven million bucks for each, it's like at least the you know the cameras are better, the audio like they're able. Because earlier in the movies, you could have some like definitely some audio issues for sure, especially in Doctor No. I distinctly just remember that, like it just sounding like very echoey at points. Yeah, and speaking of which, I actually thought the fight sequences in this, which were few and far between. Yeah, the best stage yet, apart from obviously the the fight in the train with, with Red Grant. But I actually thought that um, there was very few cuts, you know, uh, very few jump cuts, and you, you could see what was happening. Um, and it wasn't too over the top. I, I I actually enjoyed the fight scenes in this movie more than any of the previous Bond movies. Yeah, me too. I thought that they were all done really well. I mean, I do enjoy that. That from Russia with Love fight scene is, is great, though. I got to admit, on the train, that's one of the more memorable ones. Even though it's got a bunch of the jump cuts, and they would do that again with Honor Majesty's Secret Service. I do really like that fight scene, but they are definitely, they're a lot cleaner in this one. You could tell they were probably had more rehearsal time, you know, more choreography for it, that they were able to shoot it like that. And they keep the camera on them, you know, they make cut a different angle but, but but it doesn't cut when, it, when you see a punch coming along no they you know just what i mean or jump cut when you see anything like that coming yeah they actually have much better coverage in the sense that like you mm -hmm. with the arm like yeah i'm sure he's not hitting him but it looks like he does enough that you don't have to cut it to another angle to cover it up for us it looks definitely a, a lot cleaner in this one speaking of which we don't get a mirror a la connery snapper punch of the bunker but yep. we do get Kananga, <laughs> um, Salator with a left hook, like he's Meg Tyson. Yes, he does knock him the hell out. <laughs> Although, he did try and oh. drown two women in this movie. Moore was trying to drown, like he was, like, oh, when Felix Leiter first walked in and he was, like, drowning them, like, trying to get information. <laughs> and then, like, lets her come up. Yeah. But, like, you know, that's as far as uh, we get with Roger Moore hitting women in this movie. Although, in their, his defense, they yeah, were trying yeah. to kill him. What'd you think of the henchmen? Yafia Koto's henchmen. What'd you think of those two guys? The one guy with the one arm and then the, you know, um, the big heavy guy. Oh, the big heavy guy. <laughs> but he comes into the bungalow and he was bringing him room service. And it was the weirdest voice that I'd ever heard in my life. What was up with that fella's voice? I, I don't know. Well, I, I assume that his name was Whisper. I assume that's why they call him Whisper is because his voice doesn't rise above that. And I, actually, I think that's what gets him almost killed the first time is because he can't yell. <laughs> and Mura kept saying to him, 
what? Yeah, like he doesn't understand. No one, everyone says what to him. I think even Yafia Koto says like, I guess maybe that's the point is like he can't speak loud. But I mean, it, uh-huh. when they shoot the couch with him, that that scene I'll just never forget till the day I die. And the couch like blows up and he just falls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. That was right. But and he kind of goes like that at first because he thinks he's actually going. Kanaga's going to shoot him. Yeah, Ben's going to shoot him. But he shoots the couch and it just expands and throws him up back down again. Yeah, yeah. which is just foreshadowing yeah. to the very end when Mr. Big dies and we get that horrible effect of him blowing up like a balloon and hitting the ceiling. <laughs> Do you know what? Uh, see, watching that again, I'd see him burst out of the water. He actually sort of like a whoopee cushion flying into the air. Yeah, I was just like, I'm like, I, I guess that's what the design of that bullet was, but I'm like, that's crazy. <laughs> but the thing is, where's the blood? He exploded with the blood. I feel like they actually used the balloon and he bullet because he exploded like a balloon. <laughs> yeah, it looked like, a, like one of those blow up dots and too much air in it and it just exploded. Yeah, I, I couldn't believe that. But I mean, hey, that's using practical effects in 1973 for you. You know, in today's world, we would just get a CGI of him and they'll explode it that way. Yeah, well, I think that maybe if they put too much blood and guts in it, that they, they may have got like an R rating or something like that, then maybe that's why they just compromise and like, oh, blow up with blood, be all right. That's true. That's probably exactly what it is, especially since back then all we had was PG or R, so you couldn't go too, too far. You know, especially yeah. like when Bond shoots people in any of these movies, we don't really see any blood. We just kind of assume that they're dead. But is it that when they're having like, is it the, the, the voodoo guy? Yeah. Um, they're all there, no, that's them. But then Vancey goes in and starts taking people out, making some of the rest. I actually like, I actually like the, the henchmen in this movie. I like the guy with the missing arm. I like he that too. The quality there, which you could remember. Um, I thought he was fairly medicine, especially when he was threatening to cut off Bond's wee finger. Um, I also like the, the, the voodoo guy, but I don't even know their names. That's the problem. The problem is I don't know their names, but they're very memorable visually. Um, the guy with the skull on his face and stuff. Oh, that guy, that scene in general was actually kind of freaky. Like, at first it was the animatronic, and then it came up, and the second guy, what, it was actually the real one of him, and he had that his face painted, and, he, you know, you see the yellow in his eyes and his teeth. I was like, oh, that's actually a pretty scary scene. Yeah. You know, that whole scene on the Caribbean island. Um you know, I, I like that stuff. I thought that stuff was done pretty well. And they wanted yeah. to actually shoot it in Haiti, but Haiti wouldn't allow them, so they actually shot that in Jamaica. Right, they shot it in Jamaica, but that island is a fictional island, isn't that right? Where Mr. Vegas, that doesn't, the island doesn't exist. No, I don't remember what they called it. In the beginning of the movie, they were showing like which each location. I, I don't remember if it said a name and then an island in the Caribbean, but I don't remember what the name of that island was. So. Yeah, that's right. I can't remember the name of either, John, but I think it was actually a fictional island for the for the movie. But yeah, it was filmed in Jamaica. Yeah. Um, but I, I like his laugh and all. I thought his laugh was brilliant. And when when Kanaga uh, left Hoops Salvatore, he's just sitting in the corner laughing. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> what did you think of? Uh, is it J J W J W Pepper? Which one is he? J W Pepper. So he, he was the redneck cop, Louisiana cop. Oh, my God. That guy. Uh, I, I guess, what's his name in freaking, uh, this is all before the sheriff and uh, Smokey and the Bandit, but this guy was doing a precursor to that. What a freaking idiot he is, huh? <laughs> yeah, that, if there's one thing that I don't like about this movie, it's him and his character, but I'm led to believe he became a very kind of 
popular character within the Bond fandom. Um, but I, I couldn't stand that guy. Either and that whole scene with the boats, I felt as if it had gone far too long. Um, it could have been added or down a bit. That scene went on forever. I didn't time it, but it felt like the scene was going to end, and then it would just basically restart again, the chase. And the fact that, you know, he's got to call his brother-in-law, he doesn't realize it's his brother-in-law, <laughs> and he's like, and then he's like, are you sure that's your brother-in-law? And just, he's just doing this over-the-top, stereotypical redneck accent. F.G.W. Pepper, and it's him speaking the, by the by. He's just an idiot, yeah. a bumbling idiot, and yet he's the sheriff. And I'm just like, you know, it doesn't really work here. <laughs> it just felt too far. Yeah, that, that's the only thing with this movie. If that wasn't in this movie, I'm not saying this shouldn't have had a chase scene in the boat. I thought it was very impressive. The chase scene with the boats and the things that they've done. But I don't think they needed to have, would you say, a bumbling idiot character. And I think that maybe if the chase scene was shortened down a bit, the movie would be better overall. This felt as if it went a bit long. They didn't need that. But the only thing is, is that across the main, when I was watching this movie, as much as I enjoy Roy Moore in it, and I enjoyed the characters in it, and I enjoyed the storyline, there isn't that very much action in it. So maybe that's why they felt as if they needed this overlong action sequence before we went into the, the final act of the movie with Mr. Big. Yeah, it just went too, too long. That's the only problem with it. Because I did, I actually liked the actual chase itself, like most of it. Like, I thought it was cool seeing the boats, like, go over land, back into more water. Like, I was enjoying the actual chase. It just felt like it, you know, like you said, it should have just been edited down a bit. It didn't need to go on for that long. Yeah. But it was still a yeah. pretty good scene. And then we have, again, talking about Robert Charter. You know that we actually do have another Jaws reference in this movie. Um, but this movie uh, predates Jaws by two years, so it's actually there's a living that die reference in Jaws. Really? Yeah. So there's a massive saying uh, when he goes into Louisiana. It says the sportsman's paradise welcomes you, right? So in Jaws, when uh, Richard Dreyfus cuts open the tiger shark and he's emptying the contents out of his stomach, he takes out a number a number plate from a car, and it says on it, Louisiana, a sportsman's paradise. 72-73-007. Oh, that's awesome. Nah. Yeah, and people think that it's Spielberg's nod to the Bond movies because he always wanted to direct a Bond movie. That I always, Yeah, he basically always wanted to do that. I remember reading that about Indiana Jones and that basically that's when George Lucas came up with Indiana Jones, essentially, was the two of them. Like, you know, we could do our own thing because, you know, these are very much like not like the Indiana Jones. Like, you know, those are adventure films. These aren't. But like in the sense that... Every movie's a new adventure. Yeah, exactly. And that, you're right there, 100%. I think it was when Star Wars came out, him, Spielberg and Lucas were in Hawaii. Lucas asked Spielberg, what are you going to do next? And he says, I want to direct a Bond movie. And Lucas says, well, I've got something better. He's called Indiana Smith. Indiana Smith. <laughs> I'm so glad they changed that last. Can you imagine? I don't know. Would you think the franchise would have lasted this long if it was Indiana Smith? <laughs> Indiana Jones just has a better ring yet. But then again, we grew up watching Indiana Jones, so if we grew up watching Indiana Smith, would he just be used to it by now? Yeah, that's true. I mean, we're just used to the last name Jones, but it just sounds like it rolls off the tongue like Jones. I, I mean, there had to be a reason they changed yeah. it. Maybe it didn't sound well to them either. It was Spielberg, I think, actually suggested Jones. Would make sense. You know, as much as I love George Lucas, Indi uh, Steven Spielberg always felt like uh, he was a much more... Uh, I don't know how to say it. Like, George Lucas is good at what he does, but Spielberg's Spielberg, you know? Yeah, look, for me, I'm a big Spielberg fan. Big Spielberg guy. Grew up watching his movies. Massive fan. 
Um, wasn't a big fan of Star Wars growing up. But again, like the Beatles, I can respect them. And when I started kind of uh, getting into Star Wars films, I, I do enjoy the original trilogy now. I, I really like the original trilogy, especially Empire Strikes Back. I think Empire Strikes Back is one of the best movies ever made. When I looked at Lucas, I actually think that he's a really smart businessman. I think he's got really good ideas. But as a filmmaker, he's not a patch on Spielberg. And I think as a filmmaker, Spielberg is head and shoulders above him. And I think that's what Spielberg brought to Indiana Jones was all that kind of storytelling sensibilities, um, which I think Lucas kind of maybe misses on. I think that Empire Strikes Back has a lot to do with Lawrence Kasdan and the previous screenwriters, uh, the director, Aim Kirshner. And I think that Return of the Jedi is an okay conclusion to that original trilogy, but I don't think it's a great movie. I 100% agree with you on everything you just said, even like right down to like, I like the original, like I didn't grow up with Star Wars either. Like I love Star Wars now, but I didn't love it until I was like with my wife. That was kind of like the thing we bonded over with Star Wars. So I, w- I didn't a big Star Wars fan. She's a big Star Wars fan. Yeah. We're like, she's like, she likes those kinds of movies. Like she loves the Harry Potter movies. Like she's like into those types of movies. They were never my thing until I was with her. Like, uh, like even Harry Potter. I was yeah. the perfect age for Harry Potter growing up. But I saw the first one in theaters in 2001. I never saw another one in theaters. I never felt compelled to. I love the movies now, mainly because it's like something me and her bond over. But those types of yeah. movies were never my thing. Same thing with Star Wars. Like, I, I like them. But I wouldn't say, like, I'm a Star Wars, like, fanboy. Like, I'm not like those people who, like watch The Last Jedi and get offended and need to go on the message boards for three hours about it, you know? <laughs> like, it was just a movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I understand where you're coming from. It's just that I got this stage that I have with franchises where it's like, I never grew up watching Star Wars. Um, I'm kind of, I wouldn't say get into them. I have the original trilogy here on Blu-ray, Blu-ray because I, I believe they're the only ones worth having on Blu-ray. I have the prequels on DVD. I don't desire to pick them up on Blu-ray. But as a trilogy, I think the original trilogy, I think, is a decent trilogy. Is it the best trilogy ever made? I, I wouldn't have it in the top one or two, maybe not top three. I think out of the first three, I think The Empire Strikes Back is the only one to me that is outstanding. I think Star Wars is a, a very good movie. It has an age group. So that, that's what I, I think about that. As you saw, you were saying about the new ones that come out, I actually watched The Force Awakens. I didn't really like it, so I didn't feel the need that I needed to watch any further than that, to be perfectly honest. I, I, watched, I watched it and just kind of went, this is rubbish. Um, it's not what I expected a, a sequel to Return of the Jedi to be, and I just didn't feel connected to anything they'd done in that movie. So I just didn't feel the need to watch on. So that's where I kind of cut off with that. So, you know, I, I wouldn't get annoyed about it. I'm just like, it just, it's like, we talk about Terminator and Aliens, like Terminator 1 and 2, Terminator ends at the end of Terminator 2 for me. Even though there's a Terminator 3 and, and things like that, I don't feel you need to watch on after that. It's the same with Alien, the Alien movies. To me, it ends at Aliens. Don't mind Alien 3, but I always go and get hoping it's going to be better than what I remember. And it never is. Well, I just rewatched Alien 3 not too long ago, and it's not great. So <laughs> even the director's cut. Yeah. I'm 100%. Yeah, you know, with- I watch the end of the Aliens and then go... And Ponder will watch Alien 3. Well, uh, maybe it'll be better this time. Maybe I'll get it. Or maybe I'll watch the director's cut this time. I'll get it. And uh, whatever version I watch, I come away Now, I 100% agree with you on both of those statements. Terminator ends too. I'll rewatch a couple of them every once in a while, just like like the same thing. Maybe it's better than I remembered, but it never is. <laughs> same thing with Aliens. It's never yeah. it's never as good as you remember. Star Wars. I actually like The Force Awakens. 
But The Last Jedi and then Rise of Skywalker are just both. I never need to see them again. I own The Last Jedi, yeah. but I never even bothered to buy Rise of Skywalker because there's just no point to it. I'm not going to get angry about, about it because I'm not that invested. But I just felt as if this sequel trilogy they were making of Star Wars was a missed opportunity. I, I just feel as if they had Mark Hamill, they had Harrison Ford, um, they had Carrie Fisher. They could have even brought back Billy D. Williams. I'm not saying that, that they had to front the whole movie or the whole trilogy, but I feel as if they should have been respected a wee bit more. Where we left those characters at the end of Return of the Jedi, to me, was not where they should have been by the start of The Force Awakens. It is what it is. So to me, Return of the Jedi, that's where it ends. They just had no plan. That was the whole problem with that trilogy. They just, like, they gave three directors three movies to make and didn't actually have a through line through them. Like, I don't like the prequels, but they do tell a coherent story, just a very bad acted with bad CGI story, but it's a coherent story. Like the problem is with the, you start with the force awakens. If you tell people how it ends in the rise of Skywalker, it makes no sense from where they started. Yeah, exactly. But I believe that George, and I could be wrong here. George Lucas actually, uh, when he sold the rights to Disney, told him the name for the next three movies. And there was a verbal agreement that that was the movies we're going to make. See, that's what he does. I don't know. He made a group the script for Star Wars, but see the makes of, like, Empire Strikes Back. Uh, as you probably know yourself, he didn't make that screenplay. He didn't make that script. He wrote what they call a treatment, whatever it was, four or five pages, which is an outline of, you know, A, a B, C, D, E, F, G, and this is how the story's going to pan out. And then they hire screenwriters to come in and flesh that out. Exactly. And he only directed Star Wars, and then he directed the prequels. He doesn't direct empire strikes back and return of the jedi and like you could see in a new hope that he's not the greatest director look how carrie fisher is like bouncing between her accent like in and out a good director would say you know we got to have a little bit more consistency here and they do in the other two and he's not directing so like yes he has a like you said he has a great business mind like he uh, he sold star wars for four billion dollars like it's still his his brainchild but he's smart enough at least for the most part sometimes he's not that he was able to like let the people the more creative people take his baby and turn it into something bigger because he's just not as well at that same thing like he invented indiana jones but he knew that steven spielberg is the better director he got spielberg involved and then they got um who i can't remember who wrote the first indiana jones was it lawrence kasdan wrote that as well yes he did i think it was lawrence kasdan done that as well and i actually have a book here i read it a few years ago it's um the making of indiana jones and it was through Maybe the first movie, it does a bit on Campbell of Doom, does even less on Last Crusade, and then it does a wee bit on Crystal Skull. It came out around the time Crystal Skull was released. Them guys were brainstorming, you know what I mean? They, they, they were just sitting around, brainstorming, throwing ideas out, writing them down, and then Lawrence Cosm was going away and then writing the scene, or, you know, or rewriting the script. Um, so they were all involved in that way. So you're right at a certain point of view of, if, if George Lucas says, oh, you should be in there on a script, and and his favorite goes, well, I don't make that name. And he's like, well, what do you think should be? And he's like, Jones. And then people go, well, that actually sounds better. Then we'll go, we'll go with Jones. You know, that's just an example of what they were doing, throwing ideas about for Indiana Jones. And if you even look at, for example, um, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which again, I'm getting in the age now where if I want to watch an Indiana Jones movie, I want to watch a good one. I don't want to watch Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. But, um, if you even look at how Lucas kind of talks, people are getting to doing that with a lot of CGI. And, but the whole idea of Indiana Jones was that it was supposed to be based on the serials, 
from like the 1930s and 40s. So it didn't have to be perfect. It had to be done maybe using old special effects, old techniques. And even though there were techniques used in the late 70s, early 80s, and through the 80s, which were the, the techniques of the time, you didn't have to look perfect. And I think that was one of the biggest mistakes they made in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. People will talk about aliens and and shooting have gone down that road. But I think what actually done them was CGI, CGI monkeys and the CGI aliens. And I think that would basically, which, which, which um, ruined that movie. I think that they had it done at all, old fast effects and all, but they used in the 80s. It made it look visually more pleasing to people. And people made it overlook other things. A hundred percent. I actually just rewatched Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. On the first half of the movie, it looked like they were trying to actually do what you're saying, like trying to actually use like the practical effects, the old-fashioned looking sets, like from the originals. And then the second half, it just turns into a CGI mess. And you know that's George Lucas's thing. He loves to play around with new CGI, and you know it just that stuff might be good at the time. But when you go back and watch it, it just looks atrocious. Like, the whole prequel trilogy is just ugly now it's it's un, it, it, it yeah. literally looks like they're just acting in front of a green screen and you can see how much they're yeah. struggling with it it hurts those movies so much and that's why if you go back and watch for example Raiders of the Lost Ark it's been a couple of years since I've watched Raiders but I mean doing a lot of those effects practically and doing proper stunt work that doesn't age no, I mean, yeah, you might say like, oh, it looks like it looks fake, but I actually prefer that they're actually using real stuff. Like that boulder is at the beginning is a real boulder. Like I'm sure it's not like the weight of it, but that's a real practical yeah. effect that they did. Like they actually took time to do all that. Everything was done practically. Everything yeah. was done for real. Like yeah, you still know it's a movie, and like yeah, when even like when you're watching this movie and like they have the guy blow up. And, but all that stuff is real. It's all real stuff. Like they're, all the actors are actually yeah. working with real stuff. And I think that plays a big part in things. Well, if you look at Raiders as well, just talking about Raiders, and I'll go back to volunteer, of course, but that, <laughs> with the board of that opening scene, right, okay, uh, the film that on location, I think it was Hawaii, funny enough, the location, same place that they filmed at Jurassic Park. Um, but then they go to a studio and they, they build the inside of that cave where he goes down and swings across and there's the idol. But that's, even though it's, it's, it's probably fiberglass and it's wood and it's, and it's, uh, fake spider webs and it's maybe grass hanging down and, and pieces of old, what do you call wood and shrubbery or whatever it may be to put in there. It's physically there. It's yeah. artists have created that. That's never going to be it. I mean, the film's set in 1946. You know, and then the thing in the, the real tarantulas, the real spiders. I mean, if you may made that mad, it would make those tarantulas CGI. And 15 years' time, it would make fake. Where we are, 40 years down the road, and those tarantulas look real because they are real. And use the camera, the kind of like uh, the illusion that they're, what can I say, poisonous or they're, they're, they're rapid. What I actually heard was, was that, um, is that when they went in to do the scene, they have spider wranglers. A bunch of translates, and they took the translates, and they were just lying there. They weren't moving. Yes, I actually I heard about that. that Did you hear about this? They're, they're not moving, and they're all males, and they put a female in. Yeah, and they the, started all running about. Just shows you how, uh, <laughs> just how nature works. That's all it takes is yeah. a woman, and that got all the way up to humanity. <laughs> it, it, it all takes is a, is a, is a woman that, that not all the males lose their minds. Yep. <laughs> Put one woman in there. Running, running, running after their tails. 
That's it. There's thousands of us and one woman, but you know what? We're all going to try. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. Exactly. <laughs> but, but of course, that means all ties back in the bond. I know this was um, a good eight years before, five years before Raiders of the Lost Ark. But as you said, Bond inspired Raiders and uh, everything that they were doing back in the 70s with Bond practical. And they had to work out ways to do all these stunts and all these fast effects and they had stunt men to do it. Okay, some of them may be dated by their standard, but there is a kind of charm about that. That you sit down, you watch this, and you go, somebody's actually doing that. You know, just the stunt with the crocodiles, do you know that was real crocodiles? And that was actually a real stuntman running over the backs of these crocodiles? I appreciate all that. I appreciate it when they do things for real and they use real, like, they use stuntmen and everything like that. Like, there's just, we don't get that anymore in today's pretty much like you know yeah tom cruise is still willing to risk his life for everybody but for the most part like the last two weeks i've seen the flash and i've seen uh transformers it's just uh, you could just see the acting in front of the green screen i, I really think it hurts the act yeah I, I do as well i agree with you and i think with some of the big biggest films of all time that that have let's take for example jurassic park and i know they use a mix of animatronics on cgi but when that t-rex was attacking them cars that was there. So when, they, when that T-Rex put its head through the top of that car, um, it wasn't meant to knock the glass through, the plexiglass. The plexiglass came through and landed on top of them kids. And, they, and them kids were terrified. And that's in the movie. You can see that man, not advocating that kids or stuntmen or actors should be hurt by mechanical creatures. <laughs> <laughs> no, but at least they didn't get hurt. Say, but there's something there. You can, you can act off it rather than kind of like as you say, having a blue screen there and a director telling you that there's an alien in front of you, act terrified. You know, you can actually act off like aliens, you know, have an alien in front of you, the alien queen's there. I think that all just makes for a better for a better film. I just think, it, like you said, it's just harder when the director's just like, yeah, act like there's an alien in front of you or act like, like if you could at least do that or at least get somebody in a suit, yeah, I might look weird, but... You know, at least in a way, it's real, and if it'll make you feel real, because yeah, any kind of film, you have to suspend some sort of belief anyway. So, what's the difference? We're all not going to really end up in these situations. I, at least, I hope so. You know? Yeah, exactly. We want to. I mean, Richard Davis and Close Encounters of Arcade. I think it was that Damon Spielberg was um, pushing the boundaries of fast effects with his uh, spacecrafts, and there's lots of things like he, Spielberg was telling them to look up into the sky. And Greg Dreyfus was asking him, what am I looking at? I don't know what I'm looking at. <laughs> he had to explain, explain him, well, we're looking at this and this and this, and there's lights in the sky, and this is coming down and whatever. And he was like, okay. He was looking up in the nothing and trying to act in the nothing. And for somebody like him at that particular time, I suppose, in the mid-70s, the late 70s, that had never been done before, that type of uh, directing, maybe, and that type of special effects. So him as an actor probably was being already confused. Yeah, I can imagine that would be confusing. I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm sure, like, I'm guessing that stuff was done with miniatures and stuff because that's pro that's usually what they used back then was more miniatures and everything like that. So I guess they would probably have to do that in post too. And uh, what was that? That was the late set. Was, I, was ILM open yet or by that point? Because I'm sure. I think I, I I think ILM was did do some of it. Yeah, I think they did. I was the beginning or made it. Didn't ILM not work on Star Wars um, in the same year? I think ILM was only starting then. Yeah, um, some of it I think as well, John, was like op optical, you know, optical illusions, you know, that, that, that place over the top of the film. Yes, they did that a lot too, or just like, you know, a lot of like crazy camera tricks. Like, 
when you look up that stuff, like the, what they're able to actually just do with placement of cameras and stuff, or just like you know make things seem closer than they are or further they are, that stuff's always fascinating to me. And that's another thing that, for the yeah. most part, we've lost that they don't do anymore. Is like they don't actually. It's a lot easier to make a movie now than it was because you're really passing yeah. it along to other people to help finish your movie. Where back then you had to really do most of it on set. And the point is, you said about um, about camera angles and perspective. One of the best ones is is in actually um, close encounters of the ship that ends up in the desert. And on camera, you've got this ship and it looks absolutely massive. And I think it was only a model that was maybe I don't know how big it was the model, but. That's obviously in the foreground, and the people are away in the background, and it makes the, this ship look the scale. Yeah. Um, but like you say about, I think the problem is now with filmmaking, I suppose it's a good thing that you can imagine anything. You know, you can bring anything to life now with computers. Anything you imagine, any, anything you want to do on a movie, you know, if you've got the budget, you can do it, right? Yes. Whereas back in the day, they couldn't do everything, so they had to factor that into the budget. Well, we can't afford this. We'll cut this scene, right? Or how are we going to make this work? Well, we'll have to devise different artists and technicians to bring a creature to life. Or we can use a camera technique. Take, for example, Back in the Future, where the whole final scene took place at an atomic test site, where Marty had to get there, and they were testing um, atomic bombs or whatever, and that's why he was going to get back to 1985. Well, because they didn't have the budget to do that, they wrote a whole new ending that it took place at the clock tower in Hill Valley Square and it makes for a better ending, makes for a more exciting, intimate ending. And it all was filmed on the backlog of Universal Studios. That's that's actually, I didn't know that. That's genius. I didn't even know that. that I thought that ending was planned because that makes a lot of sense. And then they reuse that set, obviously, in Gremlins, but I I, I never knew that. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, so there, so there you go. That's what I'm saying. So it, it, it's one of, that's what I love about When you look at the problem solving, we're talking about Spielberg, or he problem solved throughout his career trying to make things work. And I think it leads for a more interesting movie. Um, I think it's more impactful when that happens. And I think as well, people have also said about Spielberg as well, if you look at some of his earlier movies, if you want to learn how to make movies, the match movies like you know, Jaws and Raiders of the Lost Ark and Cruise and Friends of the Third King. And then, and because he, he will, it's not just about the facts either. It's what, how you place the camera. It's when you make a cut. It's how you edit a scene. It's how you don't edit a scene. Like, yeah. for example, in Jaws, when... Um, Roy Shader has to go out and uh, bring the Boy Scouts in from swimming and he's standing on this wee boat that brings you across from one side of the island to the other and the mirror comes on to convince him that it's not a shark and don't close the beaches that's all one shot, it lasts for four or five minutes, it's one shot the boat moves around, the actors come into frame, uh, they're blocked and the boat starts moving around the bay and the camera just stays where it is the whole time. The camera doesn't move, but the the bay moves. The, the the boat moves around the bay, and then eventually um, Roy Sater and the bar move to the foreground. With have a, a like a um, a conversation that nobody else can hear them having, but all the actors, the other actors, stay in the same place, and you can still see every single one of them. And that to me is genius. To sit down and plan that and block it out, and then maybe do I don't have any takes, ten takes, fifteen takes, I don't know. Um, just to do that is amazing, and then and then he does it again later on when the billboard with the the, the that's been vandalized with the shark fin, and Richard Dreyfus and Roy Shader are trying to convince the mayor not to close the beach, and it's all one shot, it's all one take, 
and it goes on again for two or three minutes. The camera angles kind of low, but this time the camera actually moves. But they're arguing about, you know, the shark's still there. You, you got to close the beaches. And they move around, and then you see the same as Vandalese. And that's the only camera movement you have. That's it. It's all done in one shot and one take. Now, I know it's not fast effects, and I know it's not kind of like having the brainstorm, but it's basically um, just hard to tell <laughs> the story, the, the, to push the story forward. You know what I mean? With these three characters, or these two characters, and yeah, they're just camera in one place, blocked out perfectly, and then just talking out the scene. I, I, that's another thing I, I didn't know, but that makes perfect sense. And that's, you know, again, blocking scenes and getting everything ready to go before you actually start filming, choreographing, you know, rehearsals, you know, that's stuff that really does, you can just get a lot more done than in one short amount of time compared to nowadays. It's just, that's a lost art almost. I know, obviously smaller filmmakers still do that, but for the most part, these big budget films, it's like hundreds of people on set just to get one shot, and I feel like that's just too much. I and mean, I feel like it shows on screen. Like you don't need to go that far. Like I get it. Like we you know these big tentpole movies. That's what people are going or for eye candy essentially. But we're losing the plots and stories in these. But we're using the. I think we're losing uh, story, and we're losing characters, and we're losing character arc, and we're we're just losing characterizations. The, the actors now become secondary, as you said. Like I, I don't really watch too many modern blockbusters, to be honest, because they don't. A lot of them don't interest me anymore because they are just about special effects, and I wonder it, they're, they're more concerned about what special effects maybe going to look like rather than how, how is the scene, this scene going to progress, how they're going to put the story on. Cover a lot. Uh, there was one scene I wanted to bring up a couple times. To- uh, they did this twice in the movie where. Um, they kill somebody and they make it looks like a funeral and they're like, "What few? Whose funeral is it?" And he's like, "Yours." Stabs him and then they just drop the casket on him and pick him up and keep walking. And they did that later yeah. in the movie too, but we don't. They don't show us him getting killed. The CIA agent, like we just know yeah. because the people at the funeral start dancing again and singing like they did the first time, so we just know he was killed. I actually kind of like that. Yeah, yeah, they do that kind of routine where they come out uh, at straight and then they start dancing a lot. Yeah, I mean, that's a um, lot of planning to get that, just to do that, though, I feel like. you got to get a lot of people involved. But it does say about Roger Moore as well, that final act, that look for him is classic. Oh, the black uh, with the the gun holster? I love that look, actually. Yes. So do I. I mean, the black turtleneck with the brown holster uh, under the black flourish. But, um, yeah, that 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 is... When I think of Bond, that, uh, sorry, Moore's Bond, that's what I think of. Yeah, uh, I love that look, too. Actually, it's funny. I had a note for the same thing. I was like, man, that look is iconic. And I was thinking, you know, not many people can pull that off because I would love to, but it would just look terrible. <laughs> yeah, no, I couldn't pull that off. I'm too skinny for that. Yeah, I'm the opposite. So. <laughs> yeah, he, he looked good in that. And, um, I had a lot of few other things here. Did you notice? I noticed this last night watching on the on the uh, Blu-ray when the the voodoo henchman comes running at him with machete and machete wiggles. Yeah, I did notice that. There was a 
There's a couple things. I mean, a lot of the one-liners are great, like you brought up earlier in the review. Like, the the one-liners are great. That's pretty much, he does a bunch of those throughout this movie. Even his line delivery in general, it's a lot more lighthearted. But I, I just really do appreciate that about Roger Moore, that he wasn't trying to do a one-for-one. Like, George Lazenby originally was trying to copy Connery. Roger Moore kind of brought his own style to it. And I, I like that about this. And again, the gun. The gun is awesome. I, <laughs> the gun. There was, and there was a few other wee things as well about that, too. Now, he goes into the bar and he orders a drink. Now, I can't remember what the drink was. I should have made a note of it. But usually, um, I think Connery orders was the um, martini. Yeah. Isn't he shaking that stir? Yeah. Did Miller order a different drink? He did. He didn't did he order he, something? He didn't order a martini. I think he just ordered, I think it was a gin or something like that. It was not a, a martini, a though. And I was like, hmm, that's weird. And then I thought that they were going to do it later in the movie. Like, they were going to bring the trope out. Like, uh, just they were saving yeah. it. Like, it's like with the watch. Like, they use the watch a ton in this movie. But he doesn't really get to, like, get it fully functional to what he wants to until, like, the very third act. Like, there's times where he, like, kind of uses part of it. And then he gets distracted and he has to stop. So I thought that they were going to whip the trope out. Yeah, well, I like the fact that he used it when he was stuck on the carpet day dating. And you think, oh... And society's gonna go out. He's gonna pull this boat over, and then the boat's on a rope, so <laughs> he couldn't use it. So I thought that was pretty smart from a point of view of kind of sub- subverting the the expectation of the audience. Once he uses the watch, everybody's like, "Oh, he's gonna use the watch," and then he uses it later on. He escaped from the rope, yeah, to get down from being put into the water where the sharks are. But another thing as well that he actually uses for saying about the gun, that we're saying about the drink. Connor, he was always smoking cigarettes. Well, Moore is actually smoking cigars. Oh, yeah, you're right. He is. Uh-huh. And I love that where somebody asks, uh, where's Paul now? And it just cost him his hand with a cigar in his mouth. Yeah, he's a, I mean, he's a, he does pull off the debonair look for sure. So, you know, he's definitely a different, a different bond, but yet it still feels like plug and play in a way, especially yeah. since they're, you know, bouncing around with the other actors, like Felix Leiter changes again, but M and Moneypenny are the same. So, you know, it's it's got that Bond thing where some actors come back, but others don't. Yeah, and I, like, when he goes in, you talk about the one-liners, the one when he goes into the bar the second thing, and uh, somebody says to him about sitting in the bo- in the corner, in the booth, and he says, no, we'll have a table at the the stage. And Felix says to him, have you, have you got a problem with booths? And he says, I once had a nasty part of the booth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then he drops into the floor. Yeah. And that- um, somebody <laughs> says to him, uh, what says it? Thanks for dropping in. Thanks for dropping. I love that actually. And uh, Felix Leiter comes back to the table and like, he's like, "Where's my friend?" I'm like, "Everyone in that restaurant was more than willing to help. They brung a new table in right away. The set. They were waiting for Felix to get up." <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, did he seem bothered? Did he seem concerned that that Bond had just disappeared? No, I guess he, I think the Felix kind of just accepts like James is like, he's kind of like a free bird. He's going to be, he's probably like, ah, he probably picked up a woman or something and just probably went about his day. <laughs> yeah, that's the scene where they're playing live and let die. He's probably been off of her. He probably, he could have, if he would have tried, I'm sure, but he didn't put the effort in. <laughs> I'm sure he would have. Yeah. He didn't have enough time. And of course. Yeah, the, the the actual CIA woman, I, I forgot the message. Do you know she was a Playboy bunny? I did not know that. Was she really? Yep. Huh. I didn't know that. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to have to look into it. <laughs> yeah, I'll have, have, have to look more on that myself. <laughs> 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 I only found out just before the screen started, so 
Um, <laughs> well, yeah, I, I didn't know that one. That didn't come up in my research. Uh, that's an interesting one. <laughs> You're not researching hard enough, John. No, I'm not. I'm going to have to go a little deeper next time. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of this Bond movie, where would this rank in overall in the eight that we've watched so far? Well, for me, it ranks pretty high. I think that this could be my favorite Moore Bond film, but we'll see as we go along. Just a few other wee thoughts on it. I, I thought it was a great film to introduce Moore's Bond. I says, as I said earlier, I believe he makes a false move. Um, and his one-liners are brilliant. I think there's some silliness, but nothing about that was outrageous, and it was just overall a fun film. So I'm ranking this at number four, just oh. below Thunderball. Wow. Well, in a shocking thing, I'm actually going to put this at number one so far. I loved it this time. Really? Yeah, I really, and I, I told you I was worried about watching Roger Moore's Bonds. I don't know what it was. Maybe it was just because I haven't seen, like, I watched the Sean Connery ones a couple of years ago before I rewatched them this time. I didn't watch Roger Moore's in, I don't know how long, at minimum, like, 16 years. I had a great time watching this movie. I was entertained the whole time. Loved Roger Moore's Bond. I loved Yafia Koto. I loved, you know, even the little silliness of it. I just had a great time watching this movie. I had so much fun. <laughs> yeah, listen, I agree. Because I, I also have down in my notes here as well, I put up all the movie, is that I, I'm never bored watching this film. I mean, it's two hours long. See, when I put it on the other night, I actually, because I was pretty tired, and I checked to see how long it was, because I thought it was a short long movie. I thought it was maybe 90 minutes, maybe um, 100 minutes. It's two hours long. No, they got the pacing right, which was what they struggled yeah. with earlier in the Bond movies, and I feel like they got it just, they nailed everything that they needed to nail. Like, their formula is there, but like, yeah, it's pulled back on certain things like the gadgets and Q, but I just felt like the pacing is perfect, everybody is entertaining, you, you, like you said, you're not bored ever watching this movie, so I, I loved it, no. I really did. No, I. fine. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was surprised myself. Well, listen, that is very interesting. No, I think that's great. It's very interesting because even when I was writing my list, because it's been a week since I've watched the Connery movies, when I was writing my list earlier, I thought to myself, is this better than Thunderball? I mean, I, for me, it's not better than Formation with Love or Goldfinger. But for a split second, I thought, is this better than Thunderball? And I thought, no, because I love Thunderball. I'll just pop it below it. Family for me, better than Dr. No, Mazzy's Secret Service, Moving It Twice, Spicy Battle and Diamonds Off River. But that's why I put it at number four. But it's going to be interesting to see because in my mind, like, Living That Die is my favorite Moore Bond movie. I think as we get through the Moore films, you'll be surprised at some of my rankings of some of his movies. But I, I think that there's a there's a consensus. The Spy Who Loved Me is his best movie, is his best Bond movie. So I, I'm going to be very interested to see if there's any Bond movies in there that you think it uh, top or sorry, Murabon movies that get top living that guy and take that number one slot as, as we go along. Now, I think that the spy love me for me right now, at this moment in time, it wouldn't be my second favorite Murabon movie. So, I'll be interested to see how that pans out for me as, as we go along with these. Yeah, 
I mean, I'm hoping that I like them all as much as Live and Let Die. You saying that this is the best one scares me. I'm afraid that they're all going to get worse. I like the grounded storyline in this, like a smaller story. I know that, obviously, we're eventually going to get to Moonraker, so that's not a small story. <laughs> so, you know, I, I do like it when they have, you know, when they, they're they very focused and they know exactly what story they're telling. And I really felt like this whole movie... You know, very little hiccups in it, so I, I had a great time watching it. It just no issues really throughout. I, I still don't know if Roger Moore is better than Sean Connery. Like, if Sean Connery had played Roger Moore exactly like the same way, would it have been a better movie? I'm not too sure because I still think that Sean Connery is top three Bonds of all time, just because it, it's like the the template. The meat are both James Bond, but they're different eras. Yes. Um, I think that for me. Connery's the favorite out of the two, but what I like about Connery is is that he could be charming when he wanted to be, but he could also be ruthless when he wanted to be, and he used whatever means necessary to get the job done, to get the information he needed. If he needed, I'm not condoning this, but if he needed to slap a, somebody around, maybe a woman or a bad guy, you'd do it. If he needed to sleep with a woman, he'd sleep with a woman, right? And when he had to take a, a bad guy out. To me, he was ruthless, right? 100%. Whereas, I, I feel as if Moore isn't going to slap a woman about he'll charm her to get the information he needs. Doesn't necessarily have to be better, but he'll do that too. Um, <laughs> but I also feel that um, Connery, when he was threatening, to me, was more con- is more convincing than Moore. Connery is also just so his voice is just so unique and original he just doesn't sound like anybody else and he also really doesn't look like anybody else so like like i said like that was one thing with roger moore is like he could blend in with a crowd like sean connery you could pull him out no matter what so i always felt like like he's just so distinct and like his voice is so distinct even like when he's playing you know henry jones like he's just it's still i see sean connery so he's always going to stand out to me so it's just tough for me to pick Roger Moore. I mean, we're only, I'm only one movie in. You never know. At the end of this, I could think that Roger Moore is a better Bond. But for right now, yeah, yeah, you, you know, for right now, I still got to give it to Connery after only one movie with Roger Moore. But I did like them both. Yeah, I like that. Like, I, I, I'm not one of these people that says that this person's Bond, this person's not Bond. I believe all of them are Bond, even recently. It's still Bond. You know what I mean? I haven't watched Pierce Brosnan ones yet, but to me, he's still Bond. Just different eras. I, I don't buy into all this. This one is, and this one isn't. I just think that people have their favorites, or people have their you know who I prefer. I mean, even um, I'll be honest now. I, I'm not a big fan of Daniel Craig, you know. But you know, we'll get to those ones. Um, like you were saying about Connery, and you talk about Henry Jones Senior. When you watch Last Crusade, he plays a lot of it for kind of laughs. You know, he, he, he plays a lot of comedy, which is what they were going for in Last Crusade. But one of my favorite scenes in Last Crusade is when he slaps. Again, he's slapping people. But he, when he slaps Indiana Jones for cursing. Yeah, that's blasphemy. Um, <laughs> that, that's blasphemy. Yeah. <laughs> We've seen Indiana Jones for three movies now get punched and beat up and shot and all the rest. And he's retaliated whenever he's had to. When he slaps him, Indiana Jones is genuinely startled. He is. He's got like this like look on his face, like, like you know, like he couldn't believe it. <laughs> he couldn't believe that he hit him. Yeah. But the thing is as well, is that the talk that he gives him after that 
that uh, Sean Connery can rap that is, is an amazing piece of serious acting. It you is. Know, going through these different tones of the, the movie, it's a bit more comedic, even more tongue in cheek. But that's a serious moment. Because of that moment, Indiana Jones nearly has a tear in his eye because he's saying about, I never understood you, and it was his mum. Yeah. You know, and, and I, I, that's my, one of my favorite parts of that movie, you know? I- those serious moments when you pull back Sean Connery from playing, like, because you know, a movie does have a lot of the they they were going for like almost Buster Keaton and stuff like you know those kind of sight gags that they were going for that over the top comedy, which works for me. But like, it is nice when they let them just actually act without the comedy. Those scenes do work very well in that movie. That's why I, I think that's the best one in my opinion. I know you're more of a Raiders guy or a Temple of Doom guy, actually. Well, Temple of Doom is my, my favorite Indiana um, Jones movie, but Raiders, I think. Is probably the best out of the original three. Um, but I really enjoyed Last Crusade. But the thing is, when you throw in a serious, uh, dramatic moment like that, it's more impactful, you know, because you do kind of see them as this double act for a way. Remember when they escape and they're on the, the motorbike? The Nazis are coming after Indy and he, he's knocking them off the road. And there's one stage, I can't remember, but he knocks them off the road and he's got this wee smirk on his face. And he looks around at his dad. Connery's got this really bad look at his school, like his. Dirty look in his face as if that's not funny. And then you see him kind of going, like that, you know, he's, his dad doesn't approve of what he's doing. So that's kind of funny, but then you have this dramatic part. And it, it's because because he curses. Yeah. It's he, not because he killed someone, he didn't slap him. No. He, that, you know, because he punched someone, he didn't slap him. Well, that kind of fits in, like, with his character in the sense, because remember when he first when we first see him, when we don't see him, he's off camera, but, like, he makes him, like, he's trained him to be intelligent. You shouldn't have to curse. It's like, that's, like, basically lowering yourself to, like, their standard. He's like, you're smarter yeah. than that. I raised you to be smarter than that. There's a better word to use than yeah. to use a curse. So that's why he gets offended by him, which I, I love that, because I feel like that's how most parents would react in that situation like like yeah i saw you do that i saw yeah. you kill a guy before but you know what I, that's part of your job and i i get that but you didn't have to curse <laughs> yeah. yeah so i i appreciate that i did uh and one thing about sean connery and slapping have you ever seen the interview where he talks about slapping a woman <laughs> yeah i did i've seen that one i think he says something like that I stand bad or something like that, didn't he? He like says like he's like you know if they get out of line sometimes I give them a little slap. <laughs> a little slap. Just a little slap, you know. He's like, <laughs> <laughs> and he that Barbara Streisand's like you're getting a lot of fan mail about that. He's like, oh well. <laughs> he's like almost like okay. Like, he just doubles down mm-hmm. on himself. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've actually seen that where he talks about that. Uh-huh. Yeah, but Sean Connery and his accent. As oh. I say, he plays an Egyptian and Highlander. Highlander, no, wait, he should be playing a Scotsman, but no, he plays an Egyptian with a Scottish accent, oh, and then obviously you hunt for Red October, he's playing a Russian with a Scottish accent. He's not changing for nobody. <laughs> the Untouchables, he's supposed to be Irish, he starts off with a, with a half-decent Irish accent at the start. And he just morphs back into Sean Connery. Yeah, when they're on the bridge and you first see him and he's walking the beat, he does have a pretty good Irish accent, and then he does just shift back into his regular Scottish accent like two or three scenes later. <laughs> yeah, he's always at the 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 hunt for the Red October one kills me every time, especially since he's speaking Russian, and then when they zoom in and then they zoom out, it's back to and it's just like, well, he's not Russian, he's Scottish. <laughs> <laughs> But then again, doesn't who else is it like? Does Tim Curry use a, a bad? He doesn't use a Russian accent really either. So they were all kind of like bouncing between stuff. Yeah, you know what? I've never actually seen Hunt for Red October. It's one that I actually need to watch. 
Oh, it's actually. I've heard about it. It's a good movie, actually. Uh, John McTiernan directed that. Oh, did he, right? Yeah. Um, I would say that, you know, it's not as good as a Predator or Die Hard, but it's a really good movie. Uh, the biggest problem with that movie is, you know, Alec Baldwin plays, I think it's Jack Reacher, one of those characters. And right. and then Harrison Ford uh, or whoever takes over the role in the next movie. So I always kind of just felt like that's like an out. It's weird, like how that it's supposed to be the beginning of a franchise, but it, Alec Baldwin only plays the first one. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that was part of the Jack Reacher uh, novels. Yeah, it's just one of them. So, like, it it kind of stands on its own because nobody ever comes back. But I really like that movie. You should definitely uh, check that out when you when you have time because it's got a great Sam Neill's in it too. It's a good movie. Sam Neill's in it. Yeah, you know what? It's been one of the meeting to watch for a way, Nigel. Um, I just haven't got around it. Um, I did have it recorded years back, and then. <laughs> well, don't feel too bad. I, 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 it's not like one. I only watched that for the first time like two years ago. <laughs> that was one that I had been meaning to catch up on for a long time, and uh, finally I heard a podcast about it, and they were gonna like, gonna review it, and I was like, let me watch it before I listen to the podcast. So that's yeah. what finally pushed me to do it. So, uh, you got anything else? No, I think that's everything. Um, I say I really enjoyed it, and that, I think I think it's a really class ball movie. It could, could be one of uh, movie that nobody seen ball movie before, and I want to go back among some of the old ones. That could be a gateway into bond for them. Yeah, I think it's like it. It doesn't look like the '60s. It looks like it. So if you're used to 1970s movies, I definitely say you could dive into this one and get more enjoyment out of it. If you're like think that the '60s are too dated, I actually texted Matt. I'm like, I think you would have been fine watching Live and Let Die because like he had a huge problem with how slow the Connery ones were, and I think he would have been fine with this one. Yeah, funny enough, I was actually thinking about Matt again when I was watching the other night because I thought the same thing. I thought I I think Matt would enjoy Live and Let Die. Yeah, and he's like, that's where I think, because he said that. He's like, I don't really remember Connery, but he's like, I definitely remember watching the Roger Moore ones. And I was like, yeah, I, I feel like you probably could handle the pacing of these ones and have no issue, because they're like right up his alley in that sense. Yeah, so that's going to do it for us here on this one. Uh, we'll be back. Next one is going to be, I believe, The Man with the Golden Gun, if I'm correct. I'm not. A yes, host. that's the next one. Bob with the Golden Gun. Yep. And it's uh, Christopher Morgan is in that one. Plays the bad guy. Scar Manga. Yeah. Blonde hair, if I remember correctly, right? <laughs> um, no, I don't think he does. I don't remember what his hair looked like. Maybe I'm thinking of a different movie. I think movie. it's black with a wee bit of grey. If you're in the stage, just uh, as we usually remember him. I think, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure, but it's, it's not blonde. No, I just remember the gun in this movie because I always thought it was cool. So, <laughs> yeah, the one that goes. So that'll be the next one that we do. So keep a lookout for that, guys, and make sure you download this on all podcast services. Give us a five star rating, like the video, subscribe to the channel. We would really appreciate that, and we will see you next time. <laughs>